Okay, how many of you men turned to your wife and said it's not about you? That was a very tense moment. I was a little nervous about that. Well, it's great to be able to be here in my home church and be able to speak to you. And I look forward to the opportunity when you'll see up on the screen an introduction that Pastor Jim Duran uh, used two weeks ago when I spoke at the YMCA in Ventura. He, he and a group of men have gotten together and, they're, uh, and they comprise the board of the YMCA in Ventura. And they're actually taking that and making it the Young Men's Christian Association again. They're, they're introducing a ministry element to everything they're doing at the Y. Uh, really, really impressed by him. But when... Um, when he gave this introduction, you know, my, my initial reaction was, that's not me. And it's not the stuff I really care the most about. Uh, introductions sometimes are important because it gives the speaker a couple of minutes of grace. If you think his introduction was impressive, you might give him three or four or five minutes to say something valuable before you tune him out and fall asleep. And so I hope that buys me that this morning. But the, there, there was a study done on sleep in American churches. You can get rid of that now. Uh, and they, they, they did this study, and it was, you know, it was exhaustive. And they, uh, they projected how many people were sleeping any Sunday morning in churches across America. And the finding of the study was if you take all the people that are sleeping in churches on Sunday morning and you lay them end to end, they'll be a lot more comfortable. <laughs> I'm sure the government spent a lot of money on that today, but it, it's, it's, it makes a point. Uh, this morning, what I wanted to say about the, the introduction that I put up there is that we all have those. We all have our little bio resume that we put out for the world to give them a first impression that we're probably better than we really are. And if you ask men about what they, you know, what do you do? Uh, I have never heard a man say, I love my wife. What do you do? Well, I, I love God and I spend time with him every morning. What do, you, what do you do? Well, you know, I'm trying to build character in my children. What do they say? They say how they make a living. That's their, that's their badge that they wear. Some of them are proud of it. Some of them wish they were doing something else. And they have fallback positions too because they can say, you know, what do you do? Well, you know, I'm the, I've got the highest average on my bowling team at work. I get on base more than the guys in softball. Uh, I make the best cabinets of anybody on the block. I, I take better care of my car than most people. There, there's something that they're going to put out there to identify themselves and give themselves a little leg up to let people know they're people of value. I asked Debbie, uh, you know, my wife, or those of you who don't, don't know her, uh, what do women say to express their value to other women? And her first response was, women don't feel valuable. Well, truthfully, men don't feel valuable either. That's why they have to come up with all this other stuff. But then, after more reflections, she said, well, they'll probably talk about their family, how their family's doing, how many... <laughs> How many my kid is an honor student bumper stickers have you ever seen? 
There can't be any dumb kids in Ventura County because everybody's kids on the honor roll somewhere. But it says something about the parent. It makes you feel good. It makes people think you must, you must have done a pretty good job. Uh, some women will, you know, take great delight in the name brands that they wear and, uh, you know, that they, they have the best and they shop at Nordstrom's or they do whatever else equates to, to being valuable. But we all tend to want to do that because all of us are pretty insecure and not sure that we're really all that valuable. And how do we measure value? How, where's the bar set? Uh, it can be set with expectations. You know, you may have had great expectations in your life and, and they may have been imposed on you by others. You may have had them for yourself. You know, my, my expectation growing up was my dad made it to the seventh grade, so if I made it to the eighth grade, I was doing pretty well. You know, I was, you know, th- there, there wasn't much of a bar for me to hit. One, one man who was a, um, a youth pastor, volunteer youth pastor here at the church for a while and worked as a carpenter came to me and he said, Bob, I'm, I'm really disappointed and upset. And I said, what's the problem? He said, well, I'm 30 years old and... I envisioned that I was going to be doing great things in ministry by now, and, you know, I'm hardly doing anything. And Jesus was 30 years old, and, you know, he launched out into ministry. So I reminded him that he wasn't Jesus. That, that helped him a little bit. And then, you know, and then we talked about where the expectations came from and if they were really God's expectations for him uh, or not. Then we use comparison. We we were recently at a friend's house, lives on a 23,000-foot 23, mansion overlooking a lake, and he has a 22-car garage, all of them Ferraris and Lamborghinis and classic cars. Uh, and we were there with some other people. Some of them live in the same area, and one of the women that had a house that's probably 15,000 square feet, and certainly one of the nicer houses in the area, was talking to Debbie, and she said, well, I hate my house now. <laughs> And Debbie said, how could you possibly, don't say anything like that to anybody else that might hear you. They'll think you're crazy. But there's always somebody that's going to have more than you. There's always going to be somebody that does better than you. Uh, And then the third thing is generally competition. You know, we want to win. If we win, we're great. You may win in something very unimportant, but if you want to be a person that wins, uh, you know, you carry that as a badge and, and that... You may be the best bingo player at the Salvation Army fundraiser, you know, but, but it's your thing. You know, you own that. You're good at it. All of those things are very artificial, and they miss the target completely. When I was growing up, I, I tried to identify myself. We, we had moved here from Canada. When I started school, I didn't speak English all that well. It had an accent. Didn't know what baseball was, which was a tremendous stigma in first grade. Uh, and I always felt like I was trying to catch up to the other kids. And I was never, I was never a very good student. I was, you know, always mediocre. I was basically unmotivated. Uh, I loved sports, but I was never a very good athlete. I was always an okay player on a losing team all the way through high school. So nothing much to brag about that. The first thing that really struck a chord that maybe I've got some real value, uh, I was working at McDonald's, which was the only place you could work in Thousand Oaks as a kid because there just wasn't much else going on. And you, worked, you started out cleaning cigarette butts in the parking lot, and then you could work your way inside and 
start mashing potatoes and and you know after a while I became the crew man of the month and the message that that sent to me was if I work harder than other people I'll get recognized for that and I can control that I can't control how good of an athlete I am but I can I can control that and so that you know that kind of became a milestone for me that worked for quite a while uh, until God replaced it and you know, convinced me that if I gave my career to him, he could do far more than I could do just by working hard. And, and you know, don't scoff at being the crew man of the month at McDonald's because they, they gave me a dinner for two at a fancy restaurant in the Valley. And what are you going to do for a dinner for two as a teenager without a girlfriend? Well, <laughs> I decided I'd, I'd take a girl from our youth group who was a friend and that was Debbie McMaster, and I'm still taking her out 43 years later. So three, three cheers for McDonald's. God had a purpose in all of that. So when we, when we take a look at that, it brings us to the first chapter of the book that I wrote. And it's, I, I have 11 declarations that are based on declarations of the P- Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. Uh, and the first one is, I will value who, am I, who I am becoming more than what I'm achieving. And what does God measure is the most important question. It doesn't matter what our expectations are. It doesn't matter what expectations others put on us. The, the number one regret, of they, that a gal who actually dealt with hospice care for most of her life, she kept track of what people regretted in life. The number one regret was people saying, I wish I didn't live to please somebody else's dream and would have lived my own. It might have been a parent, it might have been somebody else, but it it wasn't ever theirs. But when it comes down to it, the only one that really matters is God. What is his expectation of us? It's not about doing, it's about being. Can you imagine a father that only loved his children because they did a lot of stuff? They pulled a lot of weeds. They washed the car well. That's not why you give them chores. You love them. And you give them opportunity to serve because it's going to make them a better person and develop their character. God the Father doesn't love you because you do a lot of stuff for him. He doesn't love you because you give a lot of money. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't love you because you only miss one Sunday a year coming to church. He loves you unconditionally. You don't earn it. He doesn't love you more if you do more. But he does have expectations of you. And in Philippians 1.6, it says, and I'm convinced and sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue until the day of Christ, developing that good work and perfecting it and bringing it to full completion in you. The good work is in you, not through you. The completed work is in you, not through you. That doesn't mean you're unproductive, but it means that the productive things you do count for eternity and they come out of relationship, not out of duty or obligation or guilt. And there's a big difference. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul takes us to uh, the uh, judgment that, that is going to occur for all of us and He basically says, as a wise master builder, I built a foundation, the only foundation that counts, and it's Jesus Christ. We're all there. We understand that. We're saved by grace. Jesus paid the price. We now have an established foundation upon which to build a life. 
But Paul said some will build on it with wood, hay, and stubble. You can't, can't build anything of significance with those products. And others will build with gold and silver and precious jewels. And the wood, hay, and stubble, when you come to the judgment and the quality of your life is measured in God's sight, can't stand in his presence and will burn away. And the gold, silver, and, and precious jewels will still remain. Uh, Tim LaHaye in the book, The Rapture, gives a, a picture of that. And obviously, it's, it's imagination merged with, with scripture, but it goes somewhat like this. You imagine a, a stadium that's full of millions of people. As far as the eye can see, there's people in heaven. And in the center is the throne of a holy God. And there's an angel that starts calling people out by name. And, you know, a trumpet blows and he announces that, you know, whoever it happens to be gives out a name. Here, here comes Billy Graham. Well, the, the crowd goes crazy, praising God for the life of Billy Graham. Well, that's, that's understandable. And the angel gives it the accolades. You know, Billy at an early age fully committed himself to Jesus Christ and out of love for Jesus. He had a heart for the world that didn't know him. And he spent his life faithfully, not only proclaiming the gospel, but being a faithful husband and father and maintaining a reputation of integrity that brought honor to his master. And everybody goes crazy again. But most people were people that nobody heard about. And it didn't, didn't matter very much. It was a lady that we met in, in Haiti. She had, you know, we'll, we'll call her Maria and they... You know, the angel blows the trumpet, and here comes Maria. And Maria, you know, is kind of a, a dumpy 50-year-old woman, you know, not dressed very well because she doesn't have any money. And the crowd goes crazy, and the angel says, Maria worked for 20 years. She's Haitian, went to New York as a bus driver. For 20 years, she faithfully served me there and saved up enough money that she could come back to Haiti to minister to the people here. And when the hospital close to her area announced that they were they're closing down, uh, they had a ward for disabled, severely disabled children. And she said, I want all of your children. What are you going to do with them? They said, we're just going to put them out in the street. So Maria took them into her 1,500-square-foot home that her family and, and siblings lived in, 12, 12 of these severely disabled children that needed continuous care. And she did that because she loved me. And the crowd goes crazy. Well, as you, as you progress closer to the throne, it's like walking into a dry, hot desert wind. And the heat of the holiness of God burns out all the junk. There's no, no wood, no hay, no stubble that's going to make it to the throne. Only those things that he, out of relationship with him, did through you is going to make it to the throne. And when you get there... You can take those crowns and you can lay them on his, at his feet because they're all about him. And the crowd goes crazy and praising God for what you've done. Now, that, that was just a wonderful picture. It matters how we live. It doesn't just matter that we come to Jesus. It matters how we live. But how we live only has value coming out of relationship with him. What he has generated, what he's done, not what you've done. So what does it take to work with God? He's trying to do a work in you. He's trying to complete it. How do we cooperate with that? What can we do to promote the work of that 
work. There's three things uh, that I discovered looking at the scriptures on this. The first is we have to respond to a call. Every one of us has a call. You know, we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and being. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're caused, called to go into the whole world and preach the gospel. And you have specific calls on your life. Edgar Mayhorko, who's uh, in, the, in the first chapter of my book, one of the interviews, uh, he was born in, the, in Puerto Rico, an abused, neglected home. He had to take care of his younger siblings. There was physical abuse. They were running away from dad. He would keep finding them. Uh, finally... The mother abandoned them too. Uh, he, did, he did encounter Christian grandparents, so he knew something about the Lord, but then the, parent, uh, the dad came and took him back again. He got involved in gangs. He got involved in drugs. They were doing armed robberies. But at the meantime, he was trying to make something better of himself. So he went to college, and when he was walking through the campus, uh, he saw a big crowd of people and it, this strange robotic kind of noise So as he got closer to the crowd, he could see that there was an elderly lady on a soapbox and she was preaching to the crowd, but she'd had her larynx removed and so she was talking through a mechanical voice box. And that's where the strange sound was coming from. And he was fascinated that she could even talk. So he got closer and after a while, the lady pointed her crooked little finger at at Edgar and said, you're going to lead multitudes to Christ, young man. He wasn't a Christian. He was mad at God. He didn't didn't know what this all was, but he couldn't shake that call. And the Holy Spirit kept working on his life, and he came to Christ. And now he reaches gang members and communities throughout California. Uh, When gang violence breaks out, he'll show up with a group of other former gang members who come to the Lord, and they'll permeate a culture and uh, meet with families and talk straight to kids and tell them about Jesus. And he said yes to the call. Jesus calls us all. He called his disciples to be fishers of men. We're here for much more than just coming to Jesus and going to heaven. The second thing is we need a revelation of our own limitations. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who is the founder of the organization that we go to Peru with, uh, broke her neck at the age of 17. She's an attractive, popular high school girl with aspirations of getting married and having a family and all the good things everybody wants. Uh, And it all came crashing to an end. She was immobilized uh, in in one of those striker uh, chairs where you have no mobility, can't do anything for yourself. uh, And her life was over. Her dreams were gone. There was nothing left for her except to lay there for the rest of her life and be taken care of. She had to come to the point that in her complete desperation that it was all over, that's when she found Jesus in a dimension she'd never known him before. And he took her despair and her hopelessness and turned it into joy and purpose. And she's had the honor of ministering to people all over the world, thousands and thousands of people coming to Jesus, serving the neediest, the physically neediest people on earth, an inspiration to people all around because you would never know that every day is a day in pain for her. Every day is a day that she doesn't know if there'll be another. She's already lived longer than she should, uh, but she bubbles joy like, like nobody you've ever seen. But she, she's come to, she had to come to the end before God could begin to do anything with her. And there's a story in Matthew uh, 8, verse 23 through 25, 
familiar story to you. It says, then Jesus got in the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake and waves were breaking into the boat. You, you can imagine if these were fishermen, they've been in plenty of storms before, but it wasn't any ordinary storm. The boat's about 27 feet long from boats that they found you know, from that era. Uh, you know, it's powered by sail and powered by oars. The lake is eight miles across and 13 miles wide. It has very violent seas just when the wind blows, but this was a, a, a seismos. It was like an earthquake or a tornado. It was meant for a, an unnatural occurrence on the boat, and they were swamped, and they weren't able to, to make it on their own. The crew itself, uh, you take a look at who they were, these were the hand-picked ones that Jesus asked to go with him. He hadn't, he hadn't named the, the 12 yet, but they were disciples that were with him from the very beginning, and they fished for a living. Now, it was pretty heady stuff for a fisherman to have somebody who's the most famous person in the land. He's the rock star. Huge crowds are coming from, for him. A lot of people are saying he might be the Messiah, certainly a great prophet, He's doing miracles. He just preached a sermon on the mount. He just healed a leper and a centurion's daughter. He multiplied loaves and fishes. And they were the inner core. So from no significance at all to word with the main man. You know, they, this may be the guy that overthrows the Romans and he'll be the king. And for some reason, he picked us. You know, we're pretty, we're pretty special guys. And what could go wrong with Jesus in the boat? Well, the storm can go wrong. These were people that probably when the storm started going, started getting at each other because they were always competing for who was going to be the greatest. And, you know, they, they, under pressure, you could just imagine things weren't going well for them. But fishing was the one thing they knew how to do. Like, okay, we need Jesus if we want to multiply loaves and fishes, but we don't need help to fish. We can fish. We can sail. We've done this stuff before. This is our comfort zone where we don't need to turn to anybody for help. So when you take a look at that and, you, and say, well, what happened in the middle of the storm for them? One thing we know, they lacked peace. When they woke Jesus up, it wasn't a polite request. It was, you got to help us, we're drowning. And they were intense because they'd gotten to a point of extreme desperation. They, they had no assurance they were going to make it to the other side. Now, there's some kind of fears that are okay. It's, you know, they're fears that keep us from falling off of buildings and, you know, doing stupid things. And then there are fears that are part of survival where, you know, it's flight or fight. And that's probably where they were. They were fighting for their lives, rowing until they couldn't row anymore, until they reached the end of their rope. And then there's a spirit of fear the Bible talks about. And that's probably like the fear of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what does it take for me to have, do, have eternal life? And Jesus, knowing his heart and how he valued money, said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you know, then follow me. He was afraid to leave all that behind. And as, as you take a look at that fear kept him he went away sorrowful because he knew what he'd given up, but he was too afraid to say yes to Jesus and move. The fear that we normally deal with is that kind of fear. The fear God wants to target and release us from is the fear that 
saying yes to him will cost more than we're willing to give. And by not saying yes, we lose everything that he wanted us to have. But the next thing we find out about them is they doubted. They lacked peace, they were afraid, and they doubted. Why didn't they come to Jesus and say, early in the process, it's getting a little rough out there, Master, and, and we, we know you're the Son of God. And, you know, Couldn't you give us smooth sailing to the other side so we can get to that poor guy that's possessed by demons? They didn't do that. And we could look at that and be a little judgmental, but we don't do that either. When a storm mounts, what do we do? We tend to do whatever we were doing before, just harder. You know, there's a storm in your life and you want, you want to overcome it, especially if it's an area that you feel like, you know, this is in my strike zone. I can do this. This is one of some things I need you for, but I, I, got, I got this one covered. And you redouble your efforts. And where does that get you? It gets you tired. It gets you defeated. It gets you discouraged. But they didn't ask the one who they'd seen do all of these miracles to be part of the answer to the problem that they were facing. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, it's impossible to please God without faith. And in order to have faith, we have to have two things. First of all, we have to believe that God exists. And that just doesn't mean that I believe a God created something out there and that's good. We have to believe that God existed the way he defines himself. It's a God who has personal relationship with us. Is a God that has all wisdom and all power, who's holy, who's just, who's merciful. We have to believe that God exists. And we have to believe that he's a rewarder of those that seek him diligently, not casually. How diligently do we seek? With desperation. Well, we seek a lot better when we're in a storm because we're motivated to not rely on our own efforts and to seek him like everything depends on this because it does. So there's a purpose for storms. Have a an incident that, uh, that I think, oh, well, I'll get to that in a second, but um, what do we learn about the disciples in the middle of the storm? A couple of lessons that I pulled out from my life. Rowing harder doesn't fix it. All that it does is make you tireder, wetter, and, and more discouraged. Having Jesus in the boat doesn't guarantee smooth sailing. You have Jesus in the boat, that makes all the difference. But it doesn't mean the water's always stuck. In fact, Jesus may bring the storm. The longer you wait to call for him, the worse it gets. And we look at the, you know, the people of Israel spending 40 years going around and around in the desert. They didn't have to. It took that long for God to work in them the lesson that he wanted to teach them. What if they would have responded differently earlier in the process? What if we would? What if we didn't wait till the very last minute to call out for help? And that fear makes it easy for you to forget the great works of God. They'd seen a lot of miracles. They'd seen what God can do on their behalf. They'd seen him act in, in might over nature, over sickness, over demons, and still they didn't think to ask him for help. They're not that different than we are. Why does God allow storms? In Deuteronomy 2, it says, The Lord your God 
led you through the, the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you uh, to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Well, he knows whether we're going to obey his commands, but we don't know. He's got to test us so that we see ourselves from his perspective, not how we would like to be. And only in the storm do you find out who the real person is. In law enforcement, we would always say, we, you know, we're never going to go to battle with an untested deputy. You know, we're not going to trust our life to him until he's been tested under fire and come through. And that's the guy I want you know, sharing a car with me, or that's the guy I want showing up at a scene. Well, why does God allow storms? I, a great example, and Connor, if I can borrow your... Uh, your karate experience, for example, you, you taught me a real lesson. Um, we went to see Connor. He was getting his black belt, and it was really cool. A lot of people there, a lot of parents, and a tremendous accomplishment, and he's very good at what he does. And <coughs> you, you line all these kids up, and then somebody will hold the board for them to kick. And, you know, they'll, they'll kind of do it within their comfort zone. They want everybody to succeed, and you know, they, this will look good, and the parents will cheer. And so they do that by age group, and everybody's breaking their boards pretty much. A couple of them have to do it twice. And finally, they get to, to Connor's group, and he's kind of the last guy in that group. And they, they give Connor, I don't know if they started with one board, but they gave him two boards. And not very many people could do that, and most of them were much bigger people. Uh, but he finally broke the two boards, and it, it wasn't easy. And then they moved out with a third board. And we hadn't seen anybody do three boards. And you could just see his eyes get pretty big. He's like, whoa, you know, there's a big crowd. My parents are here. The people are watching. And that's, he had never broken three boards. In fact, he hadn't broken two and a half boards. And so he tried and he tried and he tried again. And it wasn't breaking. And you could just tell this has got to be really embarrassing. You know, I'm failing in front of all of these people. Uh, this is really hard. And then his teacher came out and talked to him a little bit, gave him a little instruction, probably a little encouragement, you know, some technique, try it again. Still didn't work. The teacher came back out, talked to him again, said whatever he said, little instruction, little encouragement, uh, and Connor broke the three. People went crazy. <laughs> you know, the whole crowd, because you're caught up in all this tense and you so badly wanted him to succeed and he did it, and the place went wild. Uh, and, you know, we were, we were rooting with everybody. It was a great moment. But a, but a wonderful life lesson. The teacher probably knew this was not going to be an easy thing for him to do, but he let him get to a point of failure before he entered in. He waited till Connor really, really wanted some help at that point. You know, tell me what to do next. What do I do different? And then patiently, the teacher did that, and then he did it again, and then he took him to a point of success. And Jesus does that with us too. God knows how we're wired. We're not motivated enough to listen like we should and have a heart to obey like we should until we, we encounter failure, we encounter threat. Something is right at our door uh, and that really challenges us, and that's when... He, he responds to our needs, steps in, and gives us exactly what he needs to, to get us to the point that he wanted us to be. But you'll look at Jesus. What was he doing while this was happening? The third thing that they had to realize was that, to help that work within you to finally be completed 
was they had to achieve a deeper faith in God's ability and sovereignty. It says, and then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they said? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They'd seen miracles before, but this was a miracle in a different venue than they'd ever seen before. They were amazed. You know, they, they were still forming their opinion about who he really was. Only God can speak to the waves. Only God can make the wind stop. They went away with a sense of awe. One of the interviews in the book is uh, Pastor Eddie, and his name is unpronounceable for me, but I can't, can't say it. But he was a pastor in Haiti, and he had gone. He's Haitian, but he went to the United States. He went to seminary, got his doctorate, and went back to start a church. Church became pretty successful, and then the earthquake hit. Church was destroyed. About a third of the people died. The people that didn't die lost limbs, lost relatives, lost any semblance of any kind of employment. Everything that he built went to nothing. Eddie could have gone, come back to the States, been a good pastor here. He could have, you know, redoubled his efforts and, you know, tried, tried a different technique to building a church there. Uh, he'd learned the lesson of calling on Jesus early in the storm. He just got on his knees and asked God for direction. And today he's got a church of about 1,400. He takes orphans off the street. He has a school of about 1,400 of them, mostly orphans, people that live in, in tents. And God put it on his heart to run for the president of Haiti because he wants these orphans to have a place to work when they get out of school. And unless the government's cleaned up, that'll never happen. And he said, you know, God didn't tell me I'd win, and he didn't even tell me I wouldn't be killed in the effort because that's how politics run in Haiti. He just told me to do it. The humility of a man that would early on say, God, I'm done. I was done when I started, and you built what you built. I'm done now. What can you do with me? And now he stands amazed at what God has done. And what was Jesus doing while they were, you know, rowing like crazy and getting mad at each other? Well, Jesus wanted to get to the other side. He knew he was going to go to the other side. The father had an appointment with him with the demon-possessed man, and he was going into regions of the Gentiles uh, to proclaim that there was a Messiah for them as well. So it wasn't like this was just a pleasure trip. His purpose was to go there. But his greater purpose was to work something into the lives of the disciples, not just to get to the other side of the boat. Because his investment was in them. Jesus gets his work done through people whose lives he transforms. And outside of relationship, nothing meaningful happens. Jesus was sleeping soundly in the middle of the storm. I read one of the commentaries, and they taking a look at the language, and he said, this is like the sleep of waiting to be awakened. I don't know if you've been in a boat that where water is splashing all over the sides, and you're sleeping on the floor of the boat, and there's no cabin. You know what's wet. <laughs> but, but I've slept that kind of sleep. You know, when we, had, when we had little kids and they were in the cribs and they'd wake up and cry at night, there were times when I was really tired where my eyes weren't open, but I could hear them crying. But I realized if I act like I'm awake, Debbie's going to ask me to get up and go get them. <laughs> so none of you have done that, I'm sure. <laughs> it's that kind of a sleep where you're just waiting for somebody to call out to you. And if they do, you're going to go. But it's the sleep of peace. 
Jesus purposely allowed the disciples to reach the end of their rope. He didn't bail them out early. He didn't say, okay, you've been at this for five or ten minutes, you know, I'll, I'll make the wave stop. He let them get to the point where they were so desperate that they would cry out. Imagine Philip when Jesus came to him and said, you know, feed this crowd of 5,000 people. Well, where am I going to get the bread? He will put you in positions where it's so over your head you have to call out to him. And if you don't learn that lesson, you probably go back there over and over and over again because he wants you to learn to be dependent, to make that a natural approach to a storm. First, let me call out to him rather than first let me see if I can get out of this on my own. Jesus knew they weren't going to die in the boat. He knew he had to go to the cross. So if he wasn't going to die there, they weren't going to die there. He, he had an assurance. And he knew that he could get up and exercise authority anytime he wanted to. But he only would when the lesson in them had been accomplished. Some of us are fighting a battle with a storm. It could be a family thing, could be a financial thing. And we wonder where God is. Sometimes he's waiting for us to get to where we need to be before he intercedes. We'd love for him to bail us out. You know, we as parents love to bail our kids out. But is it the best thing for them? Most of the time, not. They have to realize their need and be humble enough to call out for help. And then it's a completely different situation. And, you know, that's where Jesus was. When... um, when Jim Durand gave that that intro of me and Ventura, he ended the intro by saying, but that's not the important stuff. The important thing is Bob's a brother, he loves Jesus, and he tries to live out his faith every day. And I thought, okay, he's getting, he's getting close to at least what I aspire to be. That's what's important. As we take a look at our identity, it's not about what we do that pleases others. It's not about reaching our personal goals. It's not about competition. It's not about comparison. It's about the only estimation of our value that we really can can rely on, and that's what God thinks about your life. How are you building on the foundation that's laid, which is Jesus Christ? Is it with something that's going to burn away and can't stand in the presence of a holy God, or is it something that you can with with a sense of fulfillment, be able to present back as a crown to him and say, this is an act of worship. You did it all in me. I'm I'm doing this out of gratitude to you. And we have to decide how we want to finish our race and finish our life. Are we going to be a slave to expectations? Are we going to be a slave to what other people think about us? Are we going to be... Abraham Lincoln once said, the only person who I seek to please at the end of the day is the one that lives inside of me. Are we going to be people that at the end of the day say, if, if God's happy with me today, if I walked in trust and obedience, that was a really good day. Whether anybody else notices or cares or give us attention or recognition for it, none of that matters if he's pleased, if I walk that kind of walk. So we can either do that or we can respond to the loving invitation that Jesus gives. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and many of us do, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. What would we pay to have real rest, to have real peace? 
to have the burden lifted from us. That's what Jesus offers. If we start with relationship with him and let him determine what's going to come out at the result of that. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says, And the Lord, who's the Spirit, makes us more and more like him until we are changed into his glorious image. What's, what's the bio you want to end up your life with? What's the resume you want to have you know, when you're done with your days? The only one that counts is if you're transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what people have seen in terms of accomplishment and other things you would get credit for. That's what a father wants. And what, would, what do we want out of our kids? You know, I want my sons to grow up reflecting Jesus. And hopefully I've participated somewhat in that process. That's what I want. I don't care if they're rich. I don't care if they, you know, do anything more, you know, the noteworthy or newsworthy. I just care if they're, they're people that have a heart that God would be pleased with. That's what the Father is looking for from us as well. Jesus didn't accomplish his mission of the Great Commission through and at the expense of the disciples. But if they hadn't been transformed men, it would have never happened. You know, the disciples, without having hearts that were changed and pride that was were broken, if they were still around at the point of the Great Commission, would have said, okay, let's put together a committee, figure out how to do this, and, you know, gee, we don't have any money, we really don't have any skills, where's this going to go? Instead, they stayed, they waited, they prayed, the Holy Spirit came, and miracles happened. They took themselves out of the equation and surrendered to whatever the master wanted to do instead of just trying harder. What a relief to live that kind of life. There's a, Evan Noggle actually sent me, or he posted a Facebook thing and, and uh, another plug for Facebook. And, and it was really worth saving. And once in a while you get those kind of things. And this, this was by St. Augustine. And it says, as best as I can say, what true value is in life as, as Jesus represents it. St. Augustine said, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement. Jesus, as we close in prayer, we're just so grateful that we have a Savior like you. Your interest is in us, not what we can do for you. Like, like a loving father, you want us to become like you, and there's no greater joy in life to, than to be able to do that. And so where we've gotten off track and things have been too, too much about performance, too much against fighting our own battles, we give that up to you and say, we are at the end of our rope. Jesus, we call on you a God of power and love and grace that can stand up and quieten our storm, a God that can change our heart and make it more like his. Father, help the productivity in our life be an explosion that comes out of a relationship of love with you as we press in closer and closer, as that's our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.